are few things on earth that generate more conversation than wine. For many, the thirst for wine knowledge becomes an obsession. We all know people who are passionate about sharing that knowledge and their opinions about wine. We call some of those folks sommeliers, wine aficionados, wine experts, wine gurus, and the most commonly used title, boring. Welcome to Grape Encounters. We love wine just as much as anyone else, but while we crave those special wines that are silky smooth and go down so easy, we find an awful lot of the conversations about wine pretty hard to swallow. There is one overriding premise here at Grape Encounters. Wine pairs best with life. Accordingly, your host David Wilson, his guests, and the rest of us on the team are here to show you a great time, how to have more fun with your wine, where to enjoy wine the most, how to immerse yourself into a wine lifestyle that isn't simply about wine. So let's dive into this week's edition of Grape Encounters. Oh, you'll learn plenty, but hopefully it will be knowledge that you can really use. Not like that Latin class you took in high school. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. And it's time for your weekly Grape Encounter. David Wilson here, your wine captain for this one-hour voyage. And I have, I guess, my first mate, although he probably should be the captain. He's somebody who's been a regular guest with Grape Encounters for now 10 years. And we often rely upon him for information about what's going on. And what I wanted to do today on Grape Encounters was really get into some of the things that are really, really changing right now in the wine world. I mean, it is going through massive transformation almost faster than we can keep up with it. We probably need to extend this show to three hours just to be able to do it. There's so much news out there, and there is nobody that is more plugged in than our good buddy Wes Hagen. And he is winemaker and ambassador and all kinds of things to Jay Wilkes, which is out in the San Ynez Valley. And Wes, gosh, nice to see you. Thank you so much. And we actually do make the wine in Santa Maria, which I guess you could say is the extended northern part of the San Ynez Valley, which is accurate. But I've been making wine in the San Ynez Valley for about 25 years. So nice to hear San Ynez. But we make wine all the way up to Paso Robles. And if you don't know where that is, take, you know, an equidistant between Los Angeles and, say, San Francisco, and you'd basically be in Paso Robles. And your company is more than just Jay Wilkes. I mean, it's a very big company with a lot of different legs to it. Can you just give us a lowdown real quick? Sure, absolutely. So I work for the Miller family, and they've been in agriculture in California since 1871. It's a sixth generation is now just raising up and starting to uh, be young enough and uh, old enough that they can go in and do a couple punch downs in the winery so we can call it a sixth generation wine growing company. But uh, we own some of the best vineyards in the Central Coast, like Bien Nacido, like Solomon Hills, like the French camp vineyard up there near you in Paso Robles. And we make wine for everyone from Landry's Steakhouse to Trader Joe's to BevMo and Total Wine and more. All these places uh, rely on our juice and our wine. But Jay Wilkes is an independent brand uh, where I'm the winemaker and we make about 10,000 cases a year, Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet Sauvignon. And been there for about five years now and just love it. It's just a fantastic brand and I'm just so proud of what we're doing. And really great wines. And uh, I guess they could go to jaywilkes.com. Is that about right? 
Absolutely. And okay. uh, my email's all over there. And if they have any questions for me specifically as the winemaker, I love to talk to people in the general public. And you may be surprised how quickly you get an email back when you reach out to me. From the real guy? From the real guy. And I do about 40 to 42 states a year on the road. Wow. So if you're in North Carolina or if you're in Tulsa or you're in Austin, let me know. And next time I'm in town, if you want to do a little tasting or come to an event or something, we'd love to include you. Okay, great. So let's jump into this conversation today because I think it's it's really interesting how things have changed. And I actually was reflecting back on some of the things that I was predicting would happen. And a lot of it did not come true, (laughs) to be honest with you. And and especially this year, there is so much discussion about some very serious changes that are really making wine producers have to completely rethink, you know, how they run their business. Not the least of which is changes in the kinds of wines people want to drink. First of all, a real trend toward lower alcohol. Oh, that's great. It is great and, you know, much more old world-like, but it's also driving some of the younger wine drinkers, apparently, to other beverages, you know, Mm. and and that seems to be really hitting the industry instead of the industry taking off, you know, like it does every year. Alcohol to me is something that I don't really worry about in wine too much. I want to make a balanced wine. I want to make a wine that's delicious. I know you have a penchant for big, rich, ripe wines a little bit more than I do, but I'm happy to drink, you know, big, rich, ripe wines in the right situation. And I think those wines suit uh, their use as a cocktail just perfectly. A nice, big, rich Cabernet. That's great. As long as the wine matches with the food that I'm doing. The problem with me as a wine drinker is that 99% of the wine that I consume is with a meal. I drink beer standing up. I drink wine at table with food. I drink spirits where I used to drink probably more spirits than I can now. But, you know, I used to drink spirits after dinner. But now really my whole focus has been as I've kind of slowed down my drinking because of some medical stuff. I really have been looking at, you know, that glass of wine with dinner. That's really what keeps wine in my mind. And the thing is, is big, rich, ripe, high alcohol wines blow food off the the table. They don't balance the flavors of the food and the wine. So even though I am a person who drinks mainly more European styled wines under 15% alcohol, I'm not the type of person that will say that any other type of wine is profane, any other type of wine that the winemaker doesn't know what they're doing. Of course, people like rich ripe wines in the United States in a culture that we grew up on flavors like Big Mac milkshake and French fry. You know, we want stuff that's big, rich, and that has all the different flavors hitting our palate at the same time. You know, I think most Americans, more is more. I want to interrupt for a second because there is another trend that's going on and it's interesting because the population at large is Mm -hmm. going in two very different directions. You've got one part of the population that's saying, you know what, the wine is too heavy for me and I'm going to go get, you know, maybe some bottled cocktail that's six or eight percent alcohol and, you know, tastes like soda pop and a lot of consumption is going that way. But what you just said about big red wines that are very fruit forward that's a huge trend right now Mm. in the industry and a lot of people are writing about it that there's more and more demand for fruit forward big juicy rich wines and I think part of the reason is just this is uh, my theory based on running and owning a wine shop that sells many different wines yeah thanks but my theory is is that a lot of people are not drinking wine with food they're sitting down they, they come in every day in droves and they sit down and they get a bottle of wine and there's no food there except maybe perhaps a a cheese plate. 
Right. And so the wine becomes the meal, in a sense, and they want something bigger. Right. React to that. Absolutely. Well, I think that the question is, I mean, there are some people back in the cocktail moment, like the people that are moving to cocktails. What a lot of people don't know about cocktails, cocktails were invented during Prohibition to cover up the methanol and the awful, awful distillation that was happening, basically because amateurs were making the hard liquor. There's two types of people that I know that drink, the people that like the taste of alcohol and the people that don't like the taste of alcohol. I'm one of these people that I love my spirits neat. I love to drink dry wine. I don't like sugar in my... uh, alcohol. If I'm making a cocktail, it's going to be lime juice, silver tequila, and maybe a splash of Cointreau or something like St. Germain to make a beautiful, simple three ingredient margarita. For those people who want to have a big beverage that is the meal, obviously red wine is meaty and wine is the only beverage. It's the only thing that I know of that you can put in your mouth that has all five flavors. So when wine hits your tongue, all five flavor receptors on each papillae light up. And I think that's one reason why wine's so delicious. And again, Americans aren't known for being really cautious in their flavor. We like things spicy. We like things fat. We like things salty. We like things sweet. And you put them all together, there is a a sense of sweetness in wine. There's a sense of uh, like minerality or saltiness in wine. There's a sense of bitterness. There's a sense of umami, which means richness. So there's certainly a big red wine hits all of those flavor uh, receptors in our mouth at the same time and literally tells our mouth that we're happy because our brain is firing like that. We've got to talk about, and we'll do that in the next segment, which we're going to break for in just a second. But we've got to talk about what you just said in more detail and especially the idea of the five components that make up our tastes because there's a a really huge trend right now in the sommelier world to focus less on the characteristics of the wine and, and adjusting those to the food and rather adjusting the food to the wine. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I'll get into that a little bit in just a second. Hey, we're talking to... Wes Hagen. He is the winemaker at Jay Wilkes, uh, part of the Miller family's family of businesses. He's a great winemaker, and you've been making wine for a long, long time. It was under the Clopepe label. That's where you and I met. Then you've moved on. Clopepe is no more, right? No moss. Well, actually, the vineyard's still there. It's making wine for Walton Hall wines. I've moved away from the family business, but my family still basically has leased our, uh, right. our family vineyard to Hall and Walt Wines up in St. Louis. Yeah. So okay. it, the vineyard's still kicking butt. But it's no longer uh, a vineyard that I make wine from. Okay, listen, let's take a break for a second and we'll be back with more Grape Encounters talking about how things are changing radically right now. It's just almost more than we can talk about in an hour, but we'll, we'll hit the highlights anyway with Wes Hagen. Be right back. Do you ever wonder what goes on in the Grape Encounters studio while you're listening to the commercial break? Research. Yeah, that's what we do. Research. You can never do too much research. We like to talk about wine. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More, America's largest independent retailer of fine wine. They carry more than 8,000 different wines from every wine-producing region in the world and offer an equally monumental selection of beer and spirits. Here's David. 
Oh my gosh, there's nothing that gives me more of a thrill than to be able to sit down with Wes Hagen. He's my guru. He is my mentor. He's one of the people that I probably have learned the most about wine from, and he's also the winemaker at Jay Wilkes. He has a resume that is so completely unbelievable, I can't even imagine doing as much as he's done in his life. Welcome back, Wes. Excited to be here. Thanks again for having me on. We've been doing this a long time, huh? We have been doing this a long time, over a decade. I would guess closer to 12 years, but that's just because time flies when we're having fun. By the way, I re-ran, I didn't tell you this, but I re-ran an interview that we did a while back. I re-ran it in March because it was so good. So if anybody's interested in that interview, it's really sensational. I think it was around around the end of March. You can just go to grapeencounters.com and check it out. So Wes, we're talking about trends and you were talking about the five, what do we call those? We call them basic taste. There's basic taste. It's basically the tongue has sensitivity to basically five things, salt, sweet, bitter, sour, and umami. Umami is the taste of monosodium glutamate or MSG. It's savory. But we like to talk also in, in wine, we do like to talk about pungent and astringent. So I want to say in wine, there's seven tastes. Okay, bitter, I'll buy that. Bitter, salt, yeah, bitter, salty, sour, astringent, sweet, pungent. Okay, I'll buy that. Yep. Okay, but I've, I've read actually a number of articles recently where, and this is a big thing right now, the Psalms themselves, many of them are now saying, forget about the tasting notes. Let's stop being so ridiculous about all of that. And let's pay more attention to the food because while a wine might not be perfect for a meal, just by adding things like salt to your food, you can adjust how the wine and the food complement one another. Absolutely. And I teach all the four different wine and food pairing classes at our local community college. So this is something that is absolutely a huge passion of mine is that wine is the greatest food uh, related beverage, how food and wine go together in our mouths. And I say the same thing to my students. If you're here for me to tell you, you know, how to match food with your wine and how to match uh, your wine with your food, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to open seven different varietal wines and open seven different flavors of potato chips and just let you go crazy. Try to find out what makes you happy. Really? Makes you happy. Do you, do you really do that? You open up seven different flavors of potato chips. Yep. Because potato chips, salty, fat, taste good with all wine. And most people will find that Sauvignon Blanc or a sparkling wine like a Champagne or a Cava or a Prosecco are just so beautiful with potato chips, all kinds of potato chips. And then some weird stuff starts coming out. You know, maybe some sour cream and onion matches beautifully with cab. And you start wondering why. And then you start thinking about the green character of the onion matching with the little bit of that Sauvignon that savage green character that can sometimes be at the edge of a Cabernet Sauvignon. And so sort of so, some of the fattiness, too, of the sour cream, right? Oh, absolutely. So you want to match stuff that has a lot of fat with a lot of acid or tannin. So the higher the fat content in your food, the more structure you need in your wine. And that's one thing that I tell my students that I say it works almost every time, is that uh, if you want to go with something uh, lower fat, you may not want as much acid and tannin. But if you want to go super high fat, having something with a lot of uh, uh, something to strip that fat off your your tongue because the way that the human tongue works, as soon as you have fat in your mouth, you can no longer taste. You can smell, but you can't taste because the fat's covering up all of the little flavor receptors on your tongue. So one thing that gets fat off the human tongue better than anything else that you can use and not die from is a sip of wine. One sip of wine just strips all that fat off your tongue. So when you go back to the food, it's like tasting it for the first time. That's one thing people don't talk about a lot in food and wine pairing is the removal of fat from the tongue and also the sort of 
feeling of having the wine strip the fat off your tongue, I think it's one of the greatest parts of the sort of feeling of drinking wine with food is to constantly be getting my tongue clean. So it sounds kind of weird and kind of funky, but it's really, really important in uh, in the discussion of food and wine. So could I pour wine out of my stomach and have it remove some of the fat? Well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> Nobody's tried that. Right. But <laughs> the French paradox does say that if you drink lots of wine with high fat food, the French eat more butter and cream than like almost any culture in the world, but they don't have, they have half the heart uh, disease rate that Americans do. So how can they eat more fat and have less heart attacks? And the closest we could come to find out, science has told us it's because they drink a lot of wine. And that wine actually has an impact that keeps the fat that they eat from sticking into their, you know, basically causing a heart attack because it doesn't basically fill their veins and their arteries as much as if they wouldn't drink wine. That wine helps flush <laughs> fat out of the human system. It's not working for me, though. Come on. Well, you're, you're either uh, not drinking wine at the right time. Not, I, I don't want to say you're not drinking enough, but uh, uh, in general, or you don't realize what you would look like if you weren't drinking wine anyway. So. That's a good point. I could be like the Goodyear blimp if I didn't I'm drink not, wine. I'm trying to say this as respectfully as possible, but wine, when used responsibly, has an amazing array of, of medicinal benefits. It helps us okay. live longer. It helps us be happier, reduces stress. And people that uh, drink wine tend to have more kids, so you can extrapolate whatever you want. <laughs> but by the way, you, you made an interesting uh, comment there when you, you, you sort of implied that I drink a lot of wine. And, you know, the reality is, is I spit a lot of wine just like you do. You know, we get to enjoy a lot of wine and experience a lot of it. But one of the great trends right now is not just drinking lower alcohol wines, but drinking alcohol in moderation. People, Americans are drinking less alcohol right now. Now, some people are trying to say that it's because of the legalization of cannabis and people are sort of, you know, getting that whatever relaxation from other things. I don't really want to go there because I'm I'm really angry about the link that is being established between cannabis and wine and all of these cannabis infused wines. It's, it's just to me, you know, let's keep these as separate products. That's just my personal opinion. You, you may have a different one. But generally, Americans are drinking less. So it's not just lower alcohol, it's that they're drinking less. And I've noticed that, by the way, in the wine bar. We've had the bar for five years, and I've noticed that people who used to come in and buy a bottle and share it between two people – and they would finish it. Now they come in and they just buy by the glass. Hmm. Well, it's a fantastic question. And I think it's both beneficial and deleterious to American society. Deleterious in the sense that if we stop drinking wine, I think we would lose that beautiful idea that a bottle of wine is an investment to keep the people we love at table for an extra hour every day. Wine brings us together. Wine keeps us together. And in a digital age where we communicate with our thumbs without making eye contact, wine brings us back to that moment where we light a candle, put delicious things on the right. table and reconnect. But the downside is? Downside can be that, you know, if you drink too much, you can be in an accident, you can get yourself in trouble Absolutely. legally. It can be bad for the human body. But again, I like to maintain uh, when I drink that level of Athenian uh, intoxication <laughs> okay. where 2,000 years ago, the Athenians would spend four hours drinking and they would never be drunk and they would never be sober, but they would have a wonderful time and they wouldn't lose their mind about it. All right. There's more to say about that, but we got to take a break for a second. Talking to 
Wes Hagen. And Wes is the winemaker at Jay Wilkes, but much more than that, he's the brand ambassador. He travels, I was going to say the country, but really the world, educating people on wine and has been doing that for a really long time. And he's done some some really cool stuff that we'll also talk about. But we got to take a break on Grape Encounters Radio. Be right back. David will be back with more Grape Encounters in a couple of minutes, which means there simply isn't enough time for him to enjoy more than a sip or two of one of his faves. Oh, the sacrifices we make in the broadcasting business. Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where we believe there's no way to fake a great wine, and where we never fake our disdain for the really bad ones. Hey, we're back with Grape Encounters Radio, and gosh, you're my hero, Wes Hagen. You know that, although I probably inflate your ego more than anybody else, right? My wife would say, don't feed the ego, but I love it. <laughs> you can explode sometime. But no, so many people know you and they just love your insight into wine. So Google Wes Hagen. He's got a lot of material out uh, on the Internet and you'll find uh, lots of really cool, interesting stuff. We're talking about wine trends today. And I've been looking at a lot of material that's been published, kind of keeping a hand on the pulse of the American wine industry. I'm going to really focus on that for the most part. Though, this next trend, I'm going to talk about a wine that's not American necessarily, but is getting its comeuppance, and that's Riesling. Oh, well, we've been talking that Riesling is going to go off for 25 years. I mean, you talk to like master psalms and guys who really love wine. Uh, there's no doubt that in the geeky world, uh, Riesling probably gets more love than any other grape. Uh, it's funny because it's at the sort of the beginner end, it's delicious and accessible because it's sometimes a little bit sweet. Uh, and at the high end, it can be bone dry with enough acid to strip the cheek lining off a white Zin drinker in 10 seconds or less. <laughs> okay. So it's, right. it's like the same. It's, 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 it's really cool to be into Riesling when you start drinking wine like Liebfrau milk and like the other stuff that, you know, uh, was really popular, Blue Nun, that was popular 25, 30 years ago. And now Riesling, maybe we're getting to the point where it's going to start taking off again. And one of my best friends sells German Riesling for a living, and he says it's killing right now, too. So um, I encourage people. I don't make Riesling, but uh, we do have some in the ground in our company. But I suggest if you've never had a love affair with Riesling, jump in with both, uh, both feet. Well, for the past several years, Riesling has actually been trending down. But now all of a sudden, it's starting to really take off. And I think it's an interesting wine because it may be the most versatile wine on the planet. I mean, exactly what you were saying. It can be super sweet or it can be bone dry. And an interesting thing is, is that when people are thinking about drinking Riesling, they have preconceptions about what a Riesling is. Okay. And, they, and so a lot of people think a Riesling is a sweet wine. Mm-hmm. Thinking about Chateau Saint-Michel out of Washington mm-hmm. sells a ton of Riesling that they make up delicious. there. It's very delicious. It's a nice alternative for somebody who was drinking white Zinfandel. But I love that wine, by the way, from Chateau Saint-Michel. 
yeah. forget what they call it. I think they call it white Riesling, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. But on the other end of the spectrum is the really dry Rieslings. Yeah. And if somebody's only experience with Riesling was sweet or dry, right. uh, if you offer them a glass, they may protest. <laughs> really? Lo- no, I don't want anything that's sweet. Well, it's not sweet. You know, it's dry. Right. Well, no, every Riesling I've had is sweet. Well, yeah, that's because you buy it in the grocery store. Sure. And this is a big deal right now in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the places, uh, Alsace, is they're trying to come together and understand, I think the Germans have done the best job, is to put a little bar on the wine that shows how sweet it is. Because if you don't know what Trocken, Halbtrocken, Baron Auslese, Auslese, all the different Trocken, Baron Auslese, like all these words for the sweetness level of the wine or the ripeness level of the wine, you are completely lost. And you are it's a total uh, shoot whether or not you're going to end up getting the wine you love. But uh, my favorite Riesling story is I had a great German friend who used to come over and bring some of his Riesling from the Feltz, which is a beautiful Riesling uh, area, growing area in Germany. And so we had drank a couple of bottles of wine over three or four hours, spending way too much money on sushi. And at the very end of the dinner, he broke out a bottle of Riesling. And this Riesling was a little sweet and super delicious, great acidity, but it was only 7.5% alcohol. Amazing. And he made, a, he made a comment I'll never forget. He says, at this point in the, in the dinner when you've been at table four hours and you've had way too much wine, it's time to drink Riesling to sober up. And I thought it was the funniest. Okay. It was the funniest thing I've ever heard that at the end of this meal, after drinking a bottle of wine each, we actually drank a bottle of Riesling over another hour and a half to make sure that we were safe to get out of there and drive home safely. Which seems ridiculous until you understand that we were both alcohol professionals and we were drinking, you know, wine with less alcohol than the regular uh, beer we drank. So uh, I just always thought that it was kind of funny. Riesling probably is the greatest session wine in the world. If you want to drink a lot of wine over a very long period of time, it's going to be, for me, Riesling or Bubbles, you know, Prosecco. So, and what's, what's really interesting, too, is that the, the higher-end German estate Rieslings have become very affordable, and they're going to be more affordable, and that's because of the strong dollar wow. and the fact that they have a massive production there right now. So it's driving the prices down, so the really good Rieslings out there they're, they're going to be more in line price-wise with what was the, you know, the cheap stuff that was on the shelves. So ask the right questions and be sure if you're going to buy Riesling, and I do encourage people to go out and try the Rieslings that are available today at great prices, but make sure that you ask somebody in the store, the wine shop, the package shop, the grocery store, whatever, ask them first what the flavor profile of that Riesling is, how sweet it is, and so on. So I like to say, too, if you want some words to ask that question, is this wine dry? No sugar, no residual sugar. Is it off-dry, which is a little bit sweet but should be balanced with acidity? Or is it, uh, is it sweet or is it sticky sweet? So sticky, sticky sweet, sweet. trocken beer and auslese. <laughs> yeah. I like to say uh, sticky. I call dessert wine stickies, and I think it's a beautiful Australian it is. It is. sort of affectation. And I love sticky wines as long as they have the acid to pay the bills. You know, beautiful acid, beautiful sugar. They match delicious. It's almost like a meal in my mouth. Yeah, but yeah, get out there and try some Riesling. It's delicious. Wine. You know what I love about you, Wes, is that you um, would seem to be the kind of guy that wouldn't enjoy sweet wines all that much but or you know or at least semi-sweet wines but you really do and you've talked uh, before about taking in a, a Behringer 
white Zinfandel uh, to pair with sushi. Now, I wouldn't bring in a bottle of white Zinfandel. Oh, you buy it there. Was, okay, all but right. But if I was having if I was having a spicy tuna roll at my local little sushi joint, and they had a nice white Zin, it's a gorgeous match. And uh, again. Um, my job is not to be fancy. My job is to get people excited about wine. And what have we done in the United States better than any other culture in the world? We have scared people away from wine by making it seem complicated, by making it seem expensive, by making it seem so fancy that they can't hang. There's no wrong way to drink wine. Have fun with it. Have fun with it. Get some people together, put a bottle of wine on the table or get three bottles of wine, put them in bags, taste them blind, see what you can learn. You know, wine is wine can be as fun as almost anything on the planet Earth. And if you go through this life without understanding what beautiful, beautiful things that wine can bring to your table, I don't think you've really lived. Okay, well, you know what? There's an article, by the way, that people should read. They can probably Google it. It's in the Rob Report, and it just came out by Ian Cobble, who is the star of the movie Psalm. And I think you read that article because I saw you comment. But, I know um, Ian. I know Ian well. I used to uh, work with Ian uh, quite extensively. Anyway, so. the article is really about bringing wine down to earth, and uh, it's worth reading. It's a really good read. All right, back to trends. We got to rush through some things, but there are a couple of other wines that I want to talk about that are really getting traction. And uh, first of all, the uh, the rosés sure. are just continue to dominate the market right now. And there is a huge glut of rosé on the market, which is driving prices down. Yep. And, and I think we have to tell people the same thing about rosé as we said about Riesling. They can be really sweet and it can be yep. bone dry. And, you need, and to, yep. you need to ask. And most of the wines you're going to see in wine shops are going to be dry. Uh, dry rosé is going off right now. There's an, also a, a trend of frozen rosé, which they call frosé. Uh, it comes out of like a Slurpee machine, so it's like adult Slurpees. I, I haven't seen that. Oh, Frosé is going off. So, oh, uh, I haven't Frosé, even seen that. No. How fun is that? I mean, that's the kind of thing we need to do with wine is to make it fun. And I know this is the speed round, but I love Rosé. You want to try the best dry Rosé in the world, try to find a wine from France, from Provence, called Tavel. T is in Tom. A-V-E-L, Tavel. It is absolutely the best. They had some... Uh, you know, you can find it at Total Wine, like a $12 Tavel, uh, one of the most delicious rosés you'll ever taste. Okay, I will try that. And by the way, you know, the rosés coming in from Argentina, Portugal, Australia uh, even are making them. Of course, France, they're, they're great bargains right now. They're just so inexpensive. It, it's, it's even hard for American winemakers to compete with that because yeah. we can't sell rosé as cheaply as the imports. Anyway, we've got to go uh, for a second. We'll be right back with more Grape Encounters. My special guest, Wes Hagen. I should start paying you, I guess, Wes, because you've been on <laughs> so many times. when I come up there. Well, that's, that is true. Okay, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. People often ask, 
Why hasn't someone tarred and feathered Grape Encounters host David Wilson for breaking so many of the old rules? Simple. No one likes the old rules. And we're back with Grape Encounters Radio and my bud, Wes Hagen is on. You can find Wes's name attached to the wines of Jay Wilkes, which he proudly is the winemaker of, and so much more. You know what? Google Wes Hagen, H-A-G-E-N. Welcome back, Wes. Well, happy to be here. Hey, listen, I, I want to mention something. This show is, by the way, sponsored today by Peak Ranch. And Peak Ranch is right out where you used to be, you know, near Clopepe. And the craziest thing, the owner of Peak Ranch is probably my best friend, my oldest friend, oh, wow. because he oh, huh? he and I went to first grade together. His name's John Wagner. He and his wife, Jillian, they bought the property or part of the property that Richard Sanford owned, which is legendary, including the old little tasting room that's in the movie Sideways. And I just wanted to mention that Peak Ranch, the winery itself is finally open, and it is a beauty. I saw it before it was finished, and I'm going to go down there in the next couple of weeks and check it out. But it is a beautiful property, and you should go see it because they just opened it this last week. And, and that uh, taste, Yeah, that tasting room has more soul than just about any place in Santa Barbara County, if not the Central Coast. When you're going to go down, let me know, and if I can uh, break away, I'll come with you. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so we're talking trends. Oh, by the way, if you're interested in the wines of Peak Ranch, which are raking in huge scores, uh, go to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. All right, got to move on. Um, There's a wine that is very interesting that is starting to show up more and more. I've got uh, a friend who is making it very successfully, and it's Orange Wines. Yeah, and no, well, it's and no, it's not wine made out of oranges. You're looking at me funny. Like, you, do you hate orange wine? No, 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 no. Orange oh. wine, especially from like Radicon. I mean, this is some of the greatest wine in the world that's made in the Alto Adige in Italy. It is white wine that is made like a red wine. It is left on the skins. Um, the traditional way of doing it is to crush white grapes and put them in a big amphora that's in the ground, so the ground offers some temperature moderation, and you let the wine ferment on the skins instead of getting the skins out of there by pressing them off. So orange wine, I like to say orange wine is very popular because the people that have written about it have made it sound popular, but it's a lot like drinking sherry. There's only like 10 people who actually buy orange wine, and they're the same people that drink sherry. They have big beards. They may have some tattoos on their neck. (laughs) They have, you know, they're the hipsters. Oh, no. they have some uh, mustache wax. You'll find like five of them live in Manhattan, five of them live in San Francisco, <laughs> and they can't shut up about orange wine. It's amazing. If you try the right orange wine, it will change how you feel about wine. Oh. Own category. It's not white. It's not red. It's not rosé. It's not sparkling. It is orange wine, and you're going to taste it, and you're going to go, oh, my God, this is the most wonderful thing in the world, or this is not <laughs> my thing. But orange wine this is such a minute bump in the world of wine. It doesn't really warrant talking too much about it, but well, you it's sure fun. are. You We're sure are. These ancient <laughs> styles. It's an ancient style, which gives us a view back to how wine was made. Yeah. So, of years so what's ago. so what's old is new again. We only have a couple of minutes left, and I'm going to get to my favorite trend. I've been calling this one. I have been preaching this. I've been telling people they need to drink this varietal, and I think maybe the reason it's trending today and it is trending big time is that i've been talking about it i have been advocating for people to drink cab franc oh, i yeah. love cab franc 
In fact, oh, I yeah. drink I drink more Cab Franc than Cabernet Sauvignon. I do. I should I should take these like earbuds out and my microphone and give them to my wife so she can wax poetic about her love for Cabernet Franc. Oh. Whether it's whether it's from the French Loire region like uh, the Bourguil um, and those regions or. The thing about Cab Franc is it's actually the leading red right now being grown on the East Coast that is not yes. a hybrid like Norton. Yes. So Cab Franc is generally – when you can't grow good Cabernet Sauvignon and you just failed with Cab Sauvignon in your vineyard wherever you are in the world but you think you're almost there, plant Cab Franc because in general the Cab Franc will produce a better wine. Uh, I find it to be a little more elegant than Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, it's not quite as savage and big and ripe in, in your face. Cab Franc is sort of the easy, delicious kind of uh, Cabernet uh, red wine. And the places you can grow it, I think, are far more sort of legion uh, than where you can grow quality Cab Sauv. And uh, wherever, whatever opportunity you have, I would start uh, with the Loire Valley in France to try to understand a little bit of what uh, Cabernet Franc can do. But there's also some delicious ones coming out of San Inez Valley. Uh, coming out of Happy Canyon. No, let's not, let's not forget Napa. Yeah, Napa. Some of the Napa Cab Francs will blow your mind. They really, and, really will. And, and it, my feeling is, is if a Napa producer is actually growing and making Cab Franc, it's because they're passionate about that because they know they could make more money and easier sales with the brand name Cabernet Sauvignon. And remember that um, uh, Cabernet Franc is 50% of Cabernet Sauvignon. Exactly. You know, yeah. Do you know what the other 50% uh, Certainly is? Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc, and yeah, Cabernet they, Franc. They, they were, they were, they were, they were relatives, and they had an illicit affair. They had a love child called Cabernet Sauvignon, and there was a and, paintbrush involved. And I won't tell you how it was involved, but yes, you can. And, imagine you know, it and, and that we had it was so inappropriate, and Cabernet Sauvignon became a bastard grape. And, and in school, all the other grapes laughed at him, and they taunted <laughs> him, and he became incensed about that. And he said, I'm going to knock my father, Cab Franc, off his pedestal. Yep. And, and he vowed to do that, and he was successful. But and, Dad has been like the man in the iron mask, Cab Franc, yep. and now he has escaped. He's been released, and, and production has gone up from 2005 to the day by almost 10 times, tenfold. Whoa, that's great. Yep. All over the world. Let's plant Cab Franc and celebrate it. That's fantastic. All right. Cabernet Sauvignon really uh, is planted more than Cabernet Franc originally because it's not as susceptible to rot and mildew. It's got thicker skins, and it, it produces an easier crop of grapes, and Obviously, uh, the world loves it, whether it's being planted in Italy, in France. It's being planted okay. all over the world as an international All right. Product. Well, thank you for putting your seal of approval on Cab Franc. I wasn't sure whether you would or you wouldn't. We've got to go, Wes. Um, if people want to know more about your wines, uh, give the website once again or tell them how they can well, get you, in touch with you. You can go to MillerFamilyWineCompany.com for all of our brands, or you can just go to straight to JWilks.com and learn as much as you want. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know you guys made Smashberry, but you cannot drink Smashberry and not smile. It's such a delicious wine. Okay, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. we got to say hasta la vista, but we'll be here next week at the same time. Well, this episode of Grape Encounters is in the bag. It's hard to imagine you haven't missed some episodes, so why not hunt them down at GrapeEncounters.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast sites. Grape Encounter Studios are located in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's Central Coast wine country, baby. Come visit us. But be warned, you won't want to leave. That's okay. We have a spare bedroom. 
But it's 55 degrees and full of old bottles. 